Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Evan Wade is the chair of the Department of History and Social Justice Studies at San Joaquin Delta College in Stockton, California. His research explores African-American social movements of the 20th century. He's the editor of the African-American Primary Source Reader and a newly released article, Claiming and Signifying Iota Phi Theta, Sage Philosophy and the Ownership of the 1960s Soul Music, Fire, the Multimedia Journal of Black Studies. He has a new study forthcoming this summer on the history of historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, as we call them. Professor Wade previously served as international historian of Iota Phi Theta Fraternity Incorporated, the nation's fifth largest African-American fraternity. He is a life member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and is the political action chair of the Stockton branch of the NAACP. He is co-host of the award-winning radio show in La Keche, Radio Cosmico, a discussion on social justice and equity. It's available on KWDC 93.5 FM in Stockton, California. Please welcome Professor Wade. Thank you so much for being here, Professor Wade. We're just going to dive right in. Maybe have you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are and where did you get this background and drive to do social justice? Oh, cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to the Jolly Broadcast, I'm Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to be on the podcast. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast, and thank you for this outlet. But my name is Evan Wade. As, as you mentioned, I teach. I'm the, I'm the chair of the history department at San Joaquin Delta College. I also coordinate our social justice studies, uh, which is a brand new uh, degree program we have, which I'll be uh, kind of going into a little bit on today. But I am not a local of Stockton, a native of Stockton. I live here now. But I came from uh, Richmond, California, born in Oakland, raised in Richmond. Always give shout outs to Nystrom Elementary School uh, right on, on, uh, on Harbor Way. That's where I went to school at. And I had a pleasure of having uh, quite a few African-American teachers. Uh, that was the majority of the teachers at, that I had at Nystrom. And in that place, that cultivating space, there was a lot of emphasis on Black history. We didn't have a lot of resources uh, but we have our teachers who are veterans who had love for the community and they instill love uh, when it comes to black heritage. Uh, and so that really rubbed off a lot on me uh, growing up as, uh, as a young child and also going to the St. Luke Missionary Baptist Church in Richmond, California. And St. Luke, we always have Black History Months and it was one of those, those Baptist churches. They always would bring up little kids to, to do speaking. And so you practice your public speaking uh, within the church. And so was very much appreciative of that black space. And when I was growing up, that was like living black history within that space. And I didn't know it, uh, but literally that church was, my great grandma was there. My grandmother was there. 
and folks of that generation. And we had a lot of elders who were migrants coming from the South. And they came up to the Bay Area during World War II to work in the shipyards. And so the whole mother's boards were people from the shipyards uh, who were welders. My great-grandmother was a welder who helped to build ships uh, right in the Kaiser shipyards of, of Richmond. And so that was, it was just common knowledge. I didn't realize how big of a deal that was, but it was fascinating just reflecting back on, uh, on having such a nurturing environment uh, that I had growing up. And then I also had strong family. Uh, my mom for quite a few years was a single mom of three children. And she went to college while she was a parent. And so being a single mom, three children, going back to school, going to, at that time, Cal State Hayward, now Cal State East Bay, and seeing that type of due diligence. And so we'll have times in our family where everyone's doing homework because we all had homework to do. And so, and my mom will be one to push me to do more homework. And so it was spring break or if if it was uh, summertime, she'll make me go to the Richmond Public Library, get books. And it couldn't be comic books. I always want to get the comic books. I had to find (laughs) books and read them and write extra book reports uh, on those. And so then I remember going to Marcus Bookstore, which is a black bookstore in the Bay Area, uh, to get a lot of curriculum and materials. And and so all this kind of really was formative to my upbringing. And from that, I was able to ultimately fast forward I went to college at Morehouse, uh, Morehouse HBCU, Atlanta, Georgia. And I was very much a fan of HBCU, going to go to HBCU. My older sister, who graduated first, couldn't go uh, because of finances. She got into, into Xavier, but it was just a financial package. She wasn't, she went to Davis as, a, as her backup. <laughs> so <laughs> she, had, she had a good time there. Yeah. But it was, I had this opportunity through a program called Making Waves. It was an after school program an experiment in Richmond at the time. But what they did was got together fifth graders, first at Nishram Elementary, then they went to broader other schools in the area. And they promised these fifth graders, we'll give you a full-ride scholarship to college if you are part of our after-school program, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, from fifth grade all the way up (laughs) until you graduate high school. And so I was part of this after-school program that said, finances, no issue. You want to go to college, you can go to college and go to any college that you that you get into, it's a matter of what college do you want to uh, to go. And from wow, making waves- they were really school, ahead, of their, ahead of their time back then. It was, it was considered to be a, a social experiment. And I, I was a part of the second wave, the second class of, of students to do it. And so now Making Waves has a, its own charter school in, in, in Richmond. And they still are offering high school scholarships. I mean, college scholarships is just not as much as it used to be. Uh, but because college, you know, prices have went up a lot nowadays. Right. Uh, but I had a chance to go to this formative space of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to Morehouse College. And that was fascinating for me just to be on a campus with all black men, mainly all black men and seeing folks from everywhere, from Alaska, from Nebraska, uh, from Georgia, South Carolina, New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, all these black folks, smart, intelligent. And when I was at Morehouse, uh, as students, we pushed each other in the class. And so the classmate came late. It was students that called out, hey, why are you late? And we used to always be dressed up oftentimes for class. And so you wore your traditional African wear or you wore uh, the suit. Uh, so imagine the classic like Nation of Islam. And that's where I learned bow ties at. <laughs> I was at, uh, at Morehouse. And so it was a pleasure. 
going there. And while there, I majored, I majored in African-American studies. So I was able to take advisement from uh, some of the brightest professors in African-American studies in the nation at that time. Marcellus Barksdale, who wrote this fascinating history about blacks in Georgia, was the chair of the African-American studies department. But also was there was Alton Hornsby, who was the editor of, at that time, the Journal of Negro History, which is now the Journal of African-American History, longtime editor for tons of years. And so I was able to be around this place of this intellectual discourse and success, and it was a place that really challenged you. And so I wanted to bring that challenge and uh, that, that approach to curriculum that I got from Nystrom Elementary, uh, that I got from being at Morehouse, that I got from Making Waves, uh, bring it back to California. And that's what I do now. I'm in Stockton. I teach courses in African American history, part one and part two. I also teach U.S. history courses and courses in social justice studies. And so I enjoy interacting with the students. And one good thing about community college is that it's, it's open access. So anyone can come to a community college. Doesn't matter your age, your background, the finance, nothing matters. Anyone can come. And so I, I enjoy just having this wide breadth of students in the classroom and uh, in this wide breadth space, being able to talk about uh, Black history. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wow, really interesting. You almost, you know, kind of have been provided this very interesting path that I don't think a lot of people have access to. So really interesting how you got there. So then in terms of social justice, because we all know that's a big topic of discussion these days. Definitely. And I can only imagine, you know, teaching social justice at this time has to be really interesting because of all the things that are going on, not only here, but around the world. Definitely, yes. So can you, I mean, I think you, you know, there's so many things that I think as I have interacted with you, your, even your focus on, you know, what's happening here in the United States and how it truly has expanded, not only today on a global scale, but it has really always been on a global scale. So can you talk a little bit about that? And because I think I think a lot of people think that, you know, yeah, in the United States where we really need to focus. But there's been a much broader focus for hundreds of years, at least. Oh, definitely. And it's interesting looking at uh, social justice from an academic standpoint. And I'm, an, I'm a historian by way of training and uh, I did my grad work in history. Uh, but literally, when you look at past movements like the civil rights movement in the United States of America, a lot of it was organized by students, uh, students who were in college. And so famously you had SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You had the Black Panther Party here uh, in in Northern California, established in Oakland by two community college students, Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. And so you have this whole history of students especially in the 1950s and 60s, who are recognizing that I can't just go to to school just for me, but I have to go to school to help my community. And they begin to protest and become advocates for change outside of the college space. And also they begin to advocate for change within the college space itself. 
And so looking at the curriculum of college, what are you learning in a history class? What are you learning in an English class, philosophy class, in a psychology class, in a chemistry or biology class uh, for a lot of the African-American students and other students of color? They, they noticed on their campuses, they were learning nothing but the history of those who were white and the white contribution to this country in the fields of history and science and math. And so they only learn about white mathematicians. They only learned about white biologists and white historians and white historical figures and great white writers. And so folks began to say, hey, we have a history of writing too. We have a history of Africa, this great place of civilization. And we make contributions in this country uh, to civilization as well. And so why isn't this being taught? And so students who began to argue and debate and uh, engage in sit-ins on campus and protests on campus where they began to call out the college system as a place of institutional racism. We can't go fight Jim Crow off campus when we're being Jim Crow in the curriculum. And so you begin to have students advocating and making change. And it's very interesting looking at this, uh, the student movement of the 1950s and 60s and many campuses early 70s. Uh, what happens from that is that you get the first African-American studies departments and majors on college campuses. And also arriving with that is Latino studies, is Native American studies, is uh, Asian American studies. And shortly afterwards, you have women's studies. And so you begin to see some degree of inclusivity, at least in some departmental spaces and some programs and majors on campuses because of students standing up and rising. Wow. Yeah. And when you look at these students, they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of resources, but what they had was their bodies and their mind. Yeah. And so they said, I'm going to use my body, even if that means I'm going to put my body in, and even if that means putting my body in harm's way, even if that means my body is going to be arrested, detained by the police. I'm going to use my body to help make change. And I'm going to use my mind to help make change. And so we see this whole breadth of a movement in our country, 1950s and 60s of students standing up off campus and on campus and making change. And here in California, you had high school students who were involved as well, too, in the city of L.A. as also in the, in the Bay Area saying, hey, we're joining in with these college folks. They're the cool people. And so if they can put their bodies and their minds on the line. Uh, why can't we do the same thing as well? This student movement it really, as it took place in the United States, it also took place other locations as well. And so looking at Africa, for instance, one thing that's not talked about is that when we have a civil rights movement in the United States of America, 1950s, 60s, and ending uh, into early 1970s, there's a parallel movement in Africa for independence, getting independence from European powers that came to Africa, raped, pillaged, and colonized. And so you have this movement of activists uh, standing up and fighting. And a lot of those activists who were a part of these different African movements, many of them had ties and connections to colleges in the United States, in particular black colleges in the United States. And so the first president of Nigeria, uh, the first president of Ghana, for instance, and Ghana was the first country to become free of European rule. Uh, these, these early individuals, many of them were from Africa, born and raised, 
but they came across to HBCUs, black colleges, and from these college spaces began to uh, take the idea of movement back to, to Africa itself. And so uh, there's always this student solidarity that goes beyond just the United States. It goes to around the world. Yeah, and I think, I, I know I've heard you talk a lot about, you know, just Pan-Africanism and, you know, Marcus Garvey and his, oh, yes. his impact on the world. So it's, it's really interesting to see when you take the parallels of what was happening there, what was happening in the United States and in other parts of the world, and then you fast forward to today, where you have challenges with the police and, you know, it, it feels like we're still doing the same thing, um, even though, you know, in some cases we could say we've, we've come, I won't say a long way, but we've come somewhere and we still have a, a ways to go, but it feels like we are, you know, kind of in the, the throes of yet another movement, if you will, that is, it looks different than it looked back in the 50s and 60s. It's, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's a new generation of younger people, right, that we see taking the streets. Uh, but we still see this idea of youth activism uh, that's there. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Marcus Garvey. So I'm, we're kind of bringing Garvey to this whole combo. We'll bring Garvey up to the present uh, because I did my uh, graduate research on Marcus Garvey on the Garvey movement uh, in the United States. Of course uh, you did. <laughs> but, but also, I like to uh, look at Garvey around the world. And it's interesting because when you study a lot of the civil rights activists in this country, and you study the activists who are involved in African independence movements, many of them reference Marcus Garvey as influential. Uh, Marcus Garvey was a very famous activist from Jamaica who established in 1917 the Universal Negro Improvement Association. He brought that organization headquarters to the United States, to Harlem, around, around 1919. And he from Harlem, which was this cosmopolitan place of a whole bunch of black folks from the Caribbean were in Harlem. A whole bunch of black folks from the South, they left the South and went to Harlem. And then you had black folks from the North who also went to Harlem. And so this became a very diverse cosmopolitan Black space where Garvey and his preaching uh, uh, helped to organize this international uh, movement, the UNIA. Uh, it was the largest movement of Black people in the world, claimed a membership of over 4 million people, and had the largest Black newspaper in the world, had a worldwide circulation. The Negro World newspaper came out every week, and every week on that newspaper was a message from Marcus Garvey. And as one newspaper will reach a place like Kenya, for instance, it will be multiple people in secrecy reading that paper. And as many folks were illiterate, it will be folks allowed who had the reading skills to who, who, who will facilitate the hearing of that paper. And so there is power within the Black voice historically, the Black rhythm voice. And you see that in Marcus Garvey. And Garvey preached during that time period that Africa must be an independent place. This was an anti-colonial movement. He said, black folks in the United States need to consider going back to Africa. Leave this Jim Crow United States, go back to Africa. And one thing he taught alongside that because he recognized 
not every single black person will leave, is take pride in being black. Take pride in your black history. Take pride in your black heritage. Take pride in your black community. And you, you have a lot of resource to give within your black community space. And so the UNIA, they created businesses to put black folks to work. Black operated, spend the black dollar. And the Negro newspaper was the largest of that black business enterprise. But literally, when you look at activists in the civil rights movement, many of them cite the Garvey movement. Famously, Malcolm X, his father, was a member of the UNIA. Elijah Muhammad's W.D. Fard, a lot of Nation of Islam members uh, had ties to the UNIA. And when we look at, uh, at, at other civil rights individuals, you see these direct ties uh, to this 1920s movement. But it also is interesting because you look at the African independence movement, many of them cite Marcus Garvey because their parents and grandparents were part of the UNIA. They heard these messages of anti-colonial. They heard these messages of independence, of Black self-pride and resilience and collective conscious action. And so this Pan-Africanism really developed during, it was before the Garvey movement, but he helped to add a lot of fire uh, to the Pan-African solidarity movements all around the world. Uh, So it's very interesting kind of looking at that. And Garvey created something, a flag. He created a flag for black folks. He said, all black folks need to be united by a flag. And that flag was the colors red, black, and green. A red bar at the very top, a black bar in the middle, and a green bar at the bottom. Red symbolized the bloodshed of black folks with slavery and colonialism and the Middle Passage and Jim Crow. A black symbolized pride, take pride in who you are. And green symbolized growth fertility. If we come together, we can grow. And it's very interesting. And he took those those colors, by the way, from Ethiopia, because Ethiopia was one of two locations in Africa that was never colonized. I'm sorry. It was the only place that wasn't colonized. Uh, Liberia was independent, but it was under a protectorate. But Ethiopia, they defeated the Italians twice as they tried to invade Ethiopia in the 1890s. And so that was the only place not to be colonized. And so... Took these colors and make it the global colors of black people. And it's very interesting today because when you look at the, um, the flags of most African nations, they have the colors red, black, green, and some are uh, also adding gold uh, to symbolize wealth, prosperity. But you see one of those colors, two of those colors, three or four of those colors. And when you look at the Caribbean, which was also colonized, Jamaica didn't get independent until the 1960s, the birthplace of Garvey. It was under British colonialism. Most Caribbean nations, these black countries in the Caribbean, they also have the colors on their flag of red, black, green, or gold. It's one of those colors, two, three, or all four. Uh, and then one thing that's oftentimes forgotten about is that there is something in the United States called an African-American flag. It kind of lost a little bit of popularity, but also has the colors of red, black, and green. And one thing that's cool, going up to present day times, is that in some of the city protests, urban protests, we have some young people out and they're carrying a flag. And so you see some black folks carrying this flag of red, black, and green. And so if you ever see that flag, that flag is power. That flag is anti-racist. 
That flag is anti-colonial. That flag is about black unity. That flag is about uh, about blacks coming together uh, to make systematic to make fundamental change. And that flag has left has led to a lot of change around the world. This civil rights movement today, what uh, is very interesting, and has some, it does have some, some interesting, newer, and different twists. Black Lives Matter is a hashtag, it's a concept, but it's also an organization. And so you have some folks who may tweet the hashtag who may not be a part of the organization. And you have some folks who may uh, preach the concept and stand on the concept who may not be a part of the organization. And you have folks in the organization who may not do as much of the other two things we mentioned. And so it's, it's very interesting. And one of the things with, with the movement today for the organization, Black Lives Matter, which was in part founded in the college space. And so uh, you had college professors who were behind the beginnings of this organization, Black Lives Matter. And they created it shortly after the, uh, the, the George Zimmerman trial. Uh, that murderer of Trayvon Martin, when he was found as not guilty, they create this hashtag and from that developed this organization. And when they created it, it was very interesting. They wanted it to be kind of a grassroots organization. So each city would have its own local leadership. Uh, it was very, it, it mirrored a lot of the, uh, of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as was founded, uh, with a meeting from Ella Baker. And if you don't know Ella Baker, look up Ella Baker, this famous black civil rights activist who does not get due justice. Uh, she got all the students in the, in the, in the 50s, 60s together and said, hey, create your own space, your own organization. And uh, Ella Baker, who was a part of the NACP at that time, when she told students to create your own organization, uh, she, she emphasized the idea of everyone being important, everyone in the space being included. And so it's a space for, for young men and a space for young women uh, all to be there and to have a rotating kind of decentralized leadership. And so when you look at SNCC in some towns, some cities like Nashville, it's under uh, a, a lady named Diane Nash. She's the leader of the Nashville SNCC. Uh, all the student sit-ins there. It was FIST students, HBCU in Nashville, under uh, Diane Nash. And so you see female leadership. You see male leadership. Are all interacting together. And so fast forward to present day, the organization Black Lives Matter, they took the same concept. Each city is able to look at its local policing policies and what, and what are the best approaches in those areas. There are some areas where there, there's body cameras that police officers have and policies around that. There's other places they have no body cameras. And so you may have one movement ag- agitating for body cameras body cameras, maybe another movement advocating for the policy to change around body cameras. Mm -hmm. There are some cities where most of the police officers are responding to health calls, is responding to mental health crisis, or officers also responding to homeless calls, homeless person on my front porch. And so in those locations, you'll see individuals who are asking for a change of the funding model for their city. They said police officers are not qualified to deal with mental health initiatives, issues. They're not qualified to deal with homeless issues. And so you need to have in those areas mental health specialists, folks who have a license in mental health to be there to intervene. 
They need to have folks with a, who have a special license in social work to interact with those who are homeless. And so in those spaces, you may hear uh, defund the police. And defund the police does not mean anarchy. There are some folks who want that. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. oftentimes in those convos doesn't mean anarchy. But what it means is looking at the volume of calls in some locations, if the volume of calls deals with social services, you need to have more social services. You cannot put a military individual within that space and expect that military individual with no training, because a workshop does not count as a training, a person with no training to come in and to, and to, uh, and to make some, uh, some changes there. And so you see this, this, this student movement of uh, a lot of younger folks uh, involved in, and some older folks taking the streets, claiming the, the, the news night cameras, right? And we want to get on the nightly news and keep on the nightly news, even in the midst of COVID. And as they're doing so, calling for some, uh, some reform. And so it's a very interesting movement to see. And there are some parallels with the uh, with earlier prior movements. Anytime you see a red, black, green flag out there, or anytime you hear of, of uh, this idea of a decentralized movement, it comes from, from past a- African-American activism and, and social formation. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Well, and I think what's so interesting also is because we have, well, I won't say because, we have a lot of young people now seemingly very engaged in the political process. When you have young people involved in that political process, we start to understand how many decisions actually get made at the local level rather than, you know, kind of the national level where, I think it, a lot of what used to be done was really directed there. And now the decentralization actually allows for much more participation in local politics, you know, as well as national politics. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And a lot of police reform is going to be uh, taking place at the state level with state laws, as well as on the, uh, the local level when it comes to your local, uh, who are your, what's your local policies like? So that, that conversation is vital to, to happen. And there's still a need for a national conversation. Uh, one thing that's typically not talked about, uh, you got to bring me back for another show on <laughs> Supreme Court rulings. You got it. But the way the courts have ruled and the way Congress has passed some laws on a federal level uh, makes it very difficult to uh, prosecute police officers. And the way that state laws are typically written for murder, for instance, makes it difficult to prosecute police officers. A lot of states have have laws, for instance, that for murder or the different degrees of murder, you may need to, in that particular state, show intent. And so was there an intent to kill? Not did the act occur, but was there intent? And typically what intent was there a motive there? And those things are typically difficult to prove, especially when you don't have both parties involved. The officer's there, but not the victim. And so there's some um, federal changes need to happen, too, uh, when it comes to some, uh, some court cases and some laws, but on top of the local change at the state level and, and local. This has been really interesting because I'm, you know, it's like 
I think a lot of times we skip over the past and a lot of people didn't get the actual history. And so we have even a lot of people today that are just trying to learn and understand, you know, whether they're Black or otherwise. So I think the information is so valuable. Today, when you think about diversity and inclusion, you know, even in the schools, because I think part of the challenge, at least for a lot of companies, are they're trying to embrace diversity and inclusion. In many cases, you know, we have kids that are already have come through elementary, middle school, high school, college, then they get to work and we're trying to make the change. But I'm, you know, as we, uh, you know, one of my previous guests, she was like, if we did more in the schools, maybe we wouldn't have to do so much at the company. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a lot we need in terms of diversity and inclusion. So on a business level, first, we need to have more Black folks and other people of color go into entrepreneurship. And so we have to stop relying upon these Fortune 500 companies to kind of in a thousand top country, uh, companies kind of dictating things. Most of those are founded predominantly by those who are white and, and headed by mainly those who are white. And so we're trying to get into and agitate and change what is white spaces. Now, these companies and the predominant whiteness of corporate America isn't accidental. Uh, part of it deals with the school system and, and preparation, right? Do you have access nowadays to a coding class, right? Or a coding academy in your area? If you do have a coding academy, can you afford it? Can your parents afford it? And so part of it is education, the educational system, and is not necessarily preparing students uh, for our present day time. Another part of it, though, deals with who's able to get financing uh, when it comes to you have an idea, you have a thought. Can you get funded for that thought? And when you think about tech companies now, most of the tech companies, they were an idea, but a whole bunch of people put millions of dollars behind this person, their young as heck, their idea. And unfortunately, there's been, uh, uh, there's been studies looking at, uh, looking at people of color, in particular African Americans, and they don't get the same funding or the same ear for those who are financiers. And so we need more black folks to create black spaces and black companies to be on a massive level. But it's going to also take many of us who are Black uh, to finance as venture capitalists those different ideas uh, so we can kind of get some type of degree of, of parity there. And so we need diversity and inclusion. Uh, it's interesting now, and don't get too duped by the headlines. There's a lot of companies pretty much every week and there's a new company coming out saying, we're woke now, right? Because it's good business to be woke. They don't want to have a strike against them, right? And so they're saying, we're woke. And as we're woke, we're going to have this internship program for more black people. Or we're going to give 30 black colleges this pot of money of $20 million. Well, $20 million spread across 35 different black colleges. You look at it, that's not a lot of money. And he's saying corporations have given 20 million, 30, 40 million, 50 million all to one white college. But folks want to kind of grab the headline. And so there is an opportunity right now to uh, make these white spaces more inclusive while we're working on Black institution building. And as we make these spaces more inclusive, we have to really control our buying power, right? 
uh, in our social media power. All right, we can all say, hey, I don't Google, I really don't like your particular program that you have for Howard University and the tech. How many Howard students did, uh, did you actually get that you offer jobs to? Apple, how are you doing? And so we can kind of, through our buying power and our social media power, kind of control a lot there uh, when it comes to uh, making those companies more inclusive. But while we do that, it's also important that we build our own institutions and we support our own institutions. So, yeah, definitely. So, And I mean, I think companies are trying to figure out how do we retain, promote, you know, mm-hmm. so I think I, you're absolutely right. I think in terms of creating that inclusion, it, it's it's a challenge for sure. Are there other things that you think could be doing? I love the entrepreneurship, you know, component of it, because I think, you know, that's always a place where you own what you're doing and you're authentic in your space because you you're running the show. And I think, you know, as we see more people of color, underrepresented minorities getting into other positions of power. I think that, that, you know, we'll start to see some of those things shift, but there's so many things we can do. Are there other things that you think we should be thinking about? Uh, one, I, I, I encourage folks to read, take time to learn history, right? Uh, study history and studying history gives you an example, give you examples of the past, right? And so we discussed like some present day social movements, but the way that organizes movements were not new. Folks studied movements of the past. And so studying history uh, allows you to see good examples of what to do. It gives a good template of what to do to learn from the mistakes of, uh, of the past, but also to learn from some good uh, positive lessons uh, of the past as well, too. And so I do encourage and always, always will encourage that to study. And for those who are interested in activism 101, at the, at the college level, we have a many college campuses across our nation. We have African studies departments, which always emphasize intellectual learning, but also grassroots organizing. And uh, at Delta, where I teach, we're developing African studies department. But one thing we have now as a new major is something called social justice studies. And that particular program is Activist Training 101. Uh, and so we take students from everywhere and they have different causes. Some people want to uh, save the world uh, from an environmental standpoint. Others want to save the world in terms of a gender justice standpoint. There's other folks who are looking at the moral ideas of technology, technology and ethics. And there's other folks looking at race, right? And so uh, from that from that program, I kind of mentor, we have a whole bunch of faculty who mentor these students and put them in intellectual spaces and and internships at the same time, too, all related to helping to train uh, when it comes to activism. But a lot of activists, when you study their bios, they have some very specific type of training that was attached to it. Yes, people decided, I want to wake up one morning, become an activist, but they spent the time to train. And so that training component is, is going to be, uh, it, is, it is important. So that the time period to study, out of the time, the time period to develop that particular craft is, is, is key. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. So many nuggets in all of the things you're talking about. And I know history, it's amazing how much history 
can not only provide you the benefit of the wisdom of the of the past, yeah. but also connect people together. Yeah. Because I know I know you knew my husband. He was a history buff as well. Yes. And the ability to connect with others of all ethnicities, races, whatever you, I mean, it's amazing to me the just the sheer connection for diversity that you have when you know your history. Yes. Just thank you so much for being here and, and shedding some light for us. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for this podcast. It's very important that we have spaces like this to have our own voice, our own narrative. It's very important that we have Black media spaces to put forth our own ideas, our own thoughts. That's in in an unfiltered way. So thank you. Thank you. Look forward to our next conversation, Professor Wade. All right, awesome. (laughs) All right, thanks so much. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.